Hey, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have no idea who I am, my name is Jonas Larkin, and I am the uh, campus pastor over at our South Wilson campus. I don't get over here often, but uh, excited to this morning. And uh, I will tell you what I told the first service. By, by my count, uh, this will be the fourth time that I've preached here, at least to a room full of people. And uh, so I went back this week and was sort of looking back at the different sermons I've preached here up to this point uh, to kind of see, you know, how have we spent our time together? What have you heard from me? That sort of thing. And so here's, I'm going to give you a recap. Um, I promise it'll make sense in a minute. The first sermon I preached here was out of Daniel, and I talked specifically about how God works through opposition, all right? Last May, I preached about marriage, but a large chunk of that sermon was about what submission looks like within the context of marriage. And then back in September, um, we were in our series in Philippians, and I preached Philippians 1 just about finding joy in suffering. So those themes there, I don't know if you're following a thread, opposition, submission, and suffering. That's why we don't, we try not to tell people when I'm coming here, because you know that you guys will be like, I've got something to do that day, all right? Um, but so when we were looking at our preaching calendar, um, I, I knew that I was going to be back here at some point this spring, <clears throat> excuse me, and so I was really hoping maybe to get something a little more lighthearted, right? Something a little more easily digestible. Or uh, at, at the very least, just something not quite as heavy. And God has a great sense of humor. Because today we are going to look at Jesus' response to a politically charged question about the extent of government authority. What could go wrong? We're going to find out. It went well in the first service, I think. I haven't checked my email yet. We'll see. All right. By the way, if you need to email me, luke.hines at vcbc.org. <laughs> All right. Luke chapter 20. I'll get serious now. Starting in verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he, has, he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So to kind of reorient us where we are, we've been going through Luke's gospel, not line by line, verse by verse, but kind of just chunks of it. And so the last two weeks, we've been following Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Right? We looked at uh, Jesus healing the blind man a couple weeks ago, right outside of the city of Jericho. Last week, Jesus was in Jericho, 
uh, when he, he brought salvation, transformation to Zacchaeus. But this week, we're, we're going along, and Jesus has finally made it to Jerusalem, where he would remain uh, until his, his arrest, his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. All right, but if you follow Luke's gospel, kind of from where we were last week into this week, you would see that Jesus' time in Jerusalem has not been without conflict or incident. Right? He's been shaking things up a little bit. And so uh, some of the things, we, we won't go back and read them, but some of the things he's been doing, he's, he's, uh, he's had some conflict with some of the religious leaders of the day. Uh, he's confounded them and some of their attempts to, uh, to sort of call him out or, or, or get him off the scene. Uh, at one point, Jesus went in and turned over the, the tables in the temple and drove out the, the money changers. Uh, he said that, that God's house would not be a den of robbers. Right, and so my point is that Jesus is, uh, it's obvious that Jesus is in town, is what I'm getting at. And uh, because of all that, some of Jesus' opponents hated him for it. Right? You see in the kind of the back, the very end of Luke 19, starting in verse 47, this this is the context in which our text for today takes place. It says, And he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Right? They wanted Jesus destroyed, but they couldn't do anything yet because the people, the crowd, loved Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. So fast forward to our text today, Luke chapter 20. And what we get here is the, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they've devised this plan that they are sure is going to take care of Jesus. They're going to get him off the scene, get Jesus out of their hair, life will return to normal, it'll be great. Okay? So verse 20, here's, here's their plan. Look at it again. It says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Right, they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but the problem was that Jesus had amassed a crowd of followers. And so these religious leaders, they, they couldn't just get rid of Jesus on their own, because if they did that, then this crowd of people, well, all of a sudden they turned against Jesus. Or I'm sorry, they turned against the religious leaders. Right? So, uh, and, and these are guys who, if you kind of read through the Gospels, they love, man, they love to be noticed by people. They love to be loved by people. They love to be seen by people. The last thing they want is to do something with Jesus that turns the crowd against them. So they're caught in this place. What are we going to, we want Jesus off the scene, out of our hair, but we can't do it ourselves because then the crowd turns against us. And so the good news is that same crowd also despised the Roman government. They were... Uh, they were oppressive. They were unfair to God's people. Uh, the, the crowd, the people, they despised the Romans. And so the chief priests, the scribes, they, they devised this plan where uh, they think they can put Jesus in a corner. We give him the right question. We put him in a corner. We give him just enough leash to get himself into trouble. All right, and that means that they don't have to take care of Jesus because Jesus will get himself with the Romans. The Romans will take care of Jesus. Jesus is off the scene, and it's all good. All right, so they, they, they come up with this question, right? A single, simple, politically motivated question. Here's what, here's what they, they ask in verse 21. It said, teacher, 
We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the word or the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That is a loaded question. All right, that is a loaded question for Jesus, answer, for Jesus to answer because in some ways, no matter how he answers in the chief priest and the scribe's mind, no matter how he answers that question, he's in trouble. All right, so to kind of play out the scenario, if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful for you to pay tribute to Caesar, then here's what happens. is all of a sudden, in the minds of the crowd, he's aligned himself with Caesar. He's, he's aligned himself with the Roman government. If he says yes and leaves it at that. And to align himself with Caesar, to align himself with the Roman government, was to like, basically set the crowd up against him. They hated the Roman government. They were, again, they were oppressive. They were unfair. So if Jesus says yes and leaves it at that, then he's in trouble with the crowd, which then gives the religious leaders the freedom to do what they need to do with Jesus, get him off the scene, and not worry about what the crowd thinks of him. All right, so that's what happens if Jesus says yes. If Jesus says no, it's not lawful for you to pay tribute to Caesar. Well, then the problem is he set himself against the Roman government. He set himself uh, against Caesar. He says that Caesar has no authority over you. And if Jesus says Caesar has no authority, then he's lined himself against the Roman government. Treason. Jesus is then arrested, probably beaten, whatever else they were going to do to him. So, so right, this is a no-win situation for Jesus, at least in the minds of the scribes and the chief priests. Right, and according to Luke, the text reads like they assume Jesus is going to say, um, you know what, it, it's time for you to align yourself uh, with God, right, deny the Roman government, because verse 20 keys us in that says that uh, they posed this question to him that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. All right, Jesus is in a corner. Their assumption is he's going to side with God against the Romans. The Romans are going to come, take care of Jesus. He's off the scene. All is well again. But then Jesus does what Jesus has always been doing, at least throughout the Gospel of Luke. Look at verse 23. It says, but he perceived their craftiness. Right? Jesus knows what's going on here. Right? Jesus, all throughout the, the Gospel of Luke, I, I pointed this out at South Wilson the last few weeks, uh, Jesus is constantly answering questions that people never actually ask. He's constantly addressing uh, concerns, thoughts that people never actually verbally express. Right? He's flexing his omniscience, right? He knows what's going on here. And so Jesus is going to address this situation uh, as he has been addressing similar situations. He, he perceives their craftiness. And here's his response in verse 24, 25. He takes a coin, right? Denarius. Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So there's a couple things happening here. Right? First, uh, kind of on this is surface level, Jesus is just masterfully 
answered this question that was, that was meant to get him in trouble. Right? I mean, this is just like a case study in how to navigate a loaded, difficult question. That's surface level. That's what Jesus has just done. And he's sort of, this is his, his drop the mic moment, right? To keep with the theme of the series. He's, he's outwitted, outmaneuvered, outsmarted. His opponents drop the mic. They have nothing to say. Right? But, but the point, the, really the point of the text is not uh, how to answer a loaded question. Because underneath Jesus' statement, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to render to God the things that are God. Underneath that, uh, that statement is, man, there is a, there is a significant response that, that I would submit is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. All right, specifically, what does it mean to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? What does it mean to render to God the things that are God? Right? That's the hinge statement in verse 25. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And kind of the key word in that is the word render, right? Which is, some translations say give, right? But even that falls a little short because the word render uh, could literally be translated in the original Greek language as basically to give what is due, to pay what is due to, to someone or something. All right, so to rephrase what Jesus has said, He's saying you, you pay or give what is due to Caesar and you pay or give what is due to God, right? And the scribes, <clears throat> excuse me, the scribes and the chief priests, they think they're, they're putting Jesus in a corner. They've given him an either or question, right? You either side with Caesar's authority or you side with God's authority, Right, that was their question to him. Whose authority do we submit to, Caesar or God? And Jesus' answer is yes. Right? Yes. Right? In other words, because of Caesar's position, because of his authority, there were certain things that were due him. Right? And, and according to Jesus, um, those were not necessarily out of bounds. You could be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we'll talk more about that in a minute, and still give to Caesar the things that are due to Caesar. But there's also things that are due to God, and those things are due only to him. So you got things that are due to Caesar, things that are due to God, and in Jesus' mind, those are not necessarily always mutually exclusive. Right? As much as the news channels you watch may want you to believe they are, they're not. Not all the time. We'll get more to that in just a minute. Like, at least in Jesus' mind, like, it could coexist. Right? You, can, you can submit and give what is due to Caesar. You can give what is due to uh, God. And those things can coexist. And, and they didn't just coexist because the Roman government lined up with the people of God. Right? The, the Jewish people... The people of Israel, the people of God, they, they despised the Roman government for a reason. Right? They were oppressive. They were unfair. And yet Jesus still says to give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. Right? In, in, in Jesus' words, it's acceptable, even expected, that even the people of God would, would give what was due to 
Caesar. And in this case, it's, it's taxes. Pay what's due to the Roman government. You benefit from the Roman government. You pay what is due to the Roman government. But, right, that's half of Jesus' answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Because he also says, you render to God the things that are God's. In other words, there were things that Caesar, for the authority that he had, had no right to lay claim to. Right? They existed outside of his authority because those things are reserved for God and God alone. Things like total devotion, unwavering confidence, complete obedience, worship. Those are reserved for God and God alone. Caesar may have wanted those things. He may have demanded those things. But those are reserved for God. So the the summary of Jesus' statement, his response, is this. It left no room for him to be accused of disloyalty to Caesar. And yet it also stressed supreme loyalty to God. It it, it was not an either-or question. It It was a both and. And that's why in verse 26 it says, They were not able in the presence of the people, to catch him and what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. They didn't know what to say. They thought they had him. And here goes Jesus just eluding them again. But where does that leave us here? Okay, because this is what we're really after. Where does that leave us here, 21st century America, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world? And kind of to, to navigate that, sort of apply that, at the heart of the issue is, is what it means to be uh, a citizen of heaven, like, like our citizenship as a people of God. Right, when, I, when I say people of God, I'm talking specifically, uh, I, I'm not saying just people that are born in America. Right? I'm not saying people that just go to church all the time. I'm saying people who have trusted in Jesus as Lord Savior, you've submitted your life to him. You've trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, for the hope of eternal life, right? People of God. As the people of God, we are not primarily citizens of this world. This is Philippians 3.20. Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not primarily citizens of of any earthly kingdom. But, right, say it this way. Basically, we are, we're aliens in a foreign land as a people of God. Or to use the, the language of the Bible, we are exiles in a place that is not our home. At least not our ultimate home. Right, but... Even though we're not primarily citizens of this kingdom, we are still at least temporarily citizens of this kingdom. More specifically, we are citizens of the places where God has put us. Here's Acts 17, verse 26. This is what Paul says when he's, he's speaking in the book of Acts. He says, And he, talking about God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, it is not by accident that you are where you are. 
You may think it's an accident. You may think it was, is, you know, you, you're here in the E-Town area because mom or dad were in the military and you ended up here and it's just where you settled. Or maybe you moved here for, uh, to start a new career. Or maybe this is just where your family's from and so it's just kind of how it worked out. You just kind of stuck around. You may think it's coincidence or accident that you are where you are, that you're a citizen of the places you are. And, but the Bible would just tell us, note that, that God has appointed you very specifically where you are on purpose for a purpose. And, and in those places, you and I are citizens of the places where God has put us. We're citizens of E-Town, surrounding communities. We're citizens of Hardin County, LaRue County, whatever county you might be from. We're citizens of the Commonwealth, not the state, of Kentucky. Right? We're citizens of the United States of America. Because this is where God has providentially put us and placed us. And because of that, there are authorities in these places that are dude, are owed or do certain things from us as citizens. So, so what do we owe to Caesar? What do we owe these temporary earthly authorities, though they are authorities? What do we owe them? That's, that's, that's the question we're getting at. And I think um, in that realm, the safest thing I can do is to just let the Bible interpret the Bible. That way, if, if you don't like the answer, you've got to take that up with God. Okay, Romans 13. Here's what Paul writes. Starting in verse one, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And he jumps down to verse 5, and he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. And here's what I want to get to, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. This is like 20, 25 or so years after Jesus told the crowd to render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's and render to God the things that were God's. It's the same oppressive Roman regime. And Paul, speaking to the church in that context, says, right, you basically pay what is owed to those to whom it's owed. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. It's the same Roman government that that oppressed, crucified Jesus. The same Roman government that Paul suffered much at the hands of. And, And according to Paul, all of that authority oppressive as it might have been, was instituted by God. All authority, not just Roman, but all authority, all over the world has been instituted by God, whether he allowed it or he himself specifically appointed it. Whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it, God has appointed all authority. To say it a little more provocatively, God has never been surprised by who's in office. Right now, 
Like, like, like God has never, God doesn't watch election night on new Fox News or CNN. I don't think he would watch either. God doesn't watch election night content, biting his nails, wondering what's gonna happen. But God's never woken up on Wednesday morning afterwards and said, I can't believe that happened. Primarily because God doesn't sleep, but also because right, he's, not, he's in control, he's sovereign, he's never been surprised. Right? And, and because of these authorities, again, whether you agree with them, whether you don't agree with them, because God has instituted them and appointed them, there are certain things that are due to them, like taxes, like revenues, like honor, like respect, to use Paul's words in Rome. But there are also things owed to God that, that the earthly authorities for the authority that they have, there are also things owed to God that, that these authorities have no right to lay claim to. All right, so let's talk about that for a minute. This is not, this is by no means an exhaustive list, okay? Um, but it'll, it'll get us moving in the right direction, get the conversation going. By the way, I said the first service, these kind of conversations are, are best had across the table from a real live human being, not from behind the safety of a keyboard, okay? So, what is owed to God that is only owed to God? All right, first thing, unwavering confidence. Here's why. The God of the universe is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He is Omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere, all the time. Right? He is sovereign. He is always in control. God alone is good and right and just in all that he does. God's plans and purposes have never failed. There is no human authority. There is no instituted authority that can make those claims, at least in a way that holds any water. Right? That's, that's God alone. That's why our ultimate confidence cannot be rooted in these human authorities. They are not omnipotent. They are not, right? they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They can't see everything. They're not all powerful. They are limited in ways that the God of the Bible is not. So that's why we don't find our ultimate unwavering confidence in these earthly authorities. Doesn't mean we disrespect, disrespect, but it just means that we don't place our confidence here. In a person, in a party, in a king, in a prince, in a ruler. Like, that's not where our confidence belongs. Right? Our, God alone is worthy of our unwavering confidence. Other thing, Obedience. And I'm talking about complete, total obedience. Right? All authorities have been instituted by God. Again, whether he appointed them or, or he allowed them to be where they are. But that doesn't mean that they get all authority. Because all authority has been given to God. It's not been given to God, it's just his. Right? He didn't have to request permission for authority. Like He has it. He's the creator. 
Right, that's what my kids are learning. They're, they're getting ready for baptism. That's the thing they're learning right now. God rules. He's, right, he has authority over it all. And because of that, our ultimate allegiance and obedience is to him. Because he has all authority. So where, where the earthly rulers and kingdoms would, would want the people of God to obey them, and comply with them and, and reject God's word, reject God's rule, then, then the people of God, that's when we have a responsibility to say, I, like, we, we don't submit to that. Right? Because our allegiance is ultimately not to the citizens or not to the kingdom of this world. Our ultimate allegiance is to a higher authority, a heavenly kingdom. Right? And if you want an example of what that looks like. It's not on Facebook. All right, I would, I would just submit to you to read the book of Daniel. Right, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel at all, uh, especially the first six chapters, it gets a little crazy after that. It might freak you out a little bit. Read the first six chapters, though. And you get a case study of what it looks like for, a, for Daniel and his friends to be faithful citizens of a hostile, uh, hostile earthly authority they're faithful, and yet whenever that authority pushes them to obey in ways that they could not faithfully do, right, then they push back. All right, case study, Daniel, that's, that's what I would, I would direct you to. So we talked about confidence, obedience, but we could sum all that and fit it under this bigger umbrella of worship. Right, as the citizens of heaven, our, the, the object of our worship is God and God alone. Because salvation comes from God and God alone. The thing that your soul needs the most is only found in God and God alone. Not even the best human authorities on earth can transform the human heart. There is no earthly king or kingdom that can uh, that can pronounce sin forgiven. Right? There is no earthly king or kingdom that can grant you eternal life. There is no earthly king or kingdom that can open the eyes of the spiritually blind or call the spiritually dead to life. Only the God of the Bible does that. Right? You, you, can't, you can't legislate people into heaven. Only the God of the Bible does that. And praise God, that's what he's, that's what he's done for many of us in this room, right? He's, he's opened our eyes. He's given us sight. He's moved us from death to life because of the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ for all who have believed. But here's what I want to press a little bit. It's just looking around. I don't think it's, it's any secret that we live in a... Uh, a polarizing, divisive sort of climate around these sorts of things. And, and I would just submit that if, if all the divisiveness and the polarization that surrounds us, if it, if it reveals anything, it's that the world, including some of us as citizens of heaven, is that we've taken that which is owed to God, confidence, trust, Obedience, worship, 
and we've laid it on the authorities of this present age. Right? We've, we've placed far too much confidence in the authorities over these earthly kingdoms. Right? We've placed far too much trust in political parties, presidents, kings, rulers, governors. And, and just so, like I'm talking across the board. I'm, I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on. My goal is to offend everyone equally. Okay? I, I don't care who you support. The danger is that we put way too much trust and confidence in the rulers of these earthly kingdoms, right? That, that, we, that we worship the authorities over this present age over the God who actually instituted them in the first place. To use Jesus' language, we've rendered unto Caesar the things that are God's. That's why it's divisive. That's why it's polarizing. Because we've taken what doesn't belong to these rulers and we've just said, here, have it. So as we land the plane, here's, I want to let just the words of Psalm 146 sort of reorient our hearts and our minds around what it might look like for us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to render to God the things that are God's. Here's what the psalmist writes. Psalm 146, first four verses. He says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Right? His praise, his worship directed to who? God. Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Here's what the psalmist is calling us to. Your praise, your worship belongs to the God of heaven. That is not to be bestowed on any other person. Because all the kingdoms of this world, they are temporary. One day, all the kingdoms of this world will come to an end. All of them. And I know that that sounds foreign to our American ears right? because we're so used to being on top, right? One day the kingdoms of this world will come to an end. And, and, and even though that sounds foreign, I want you to consider Rome, who we've talked about kind of all morning. Once the most powerful, the most uh, forceful, the, the largest political military force in the known world. And now if you go on a European vacation, you can take pictures in front of their ruins. The kingdoms of this world are temporary. They are an experiment at best. But the kingdom of God is a certainty. And it will last forever. So the question I have for you this morning, a couple. One, where is your citizenship? Where's your citizenship? Have you, are, you, are you submitting primarily to the rulers of this present world or is your ultimate allegiance to the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things? Like where, where have you placed your ultimate loyalties? 
in whom or in what have you placed your total confidence? Because what I'm submitting to you and what I think the, the Bible would submit to you over and over and over again to give, your, to give your worship, to give your obedience, to give your trust, to give your confidence to anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible is to end in ruin. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes, your revenues. Give honor and respect where it is due, and it is due. But make sure you're rendering to God the things that are God's. Your confidence, your trust, your obedience, your worship, your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning and uh, are just reminded that you are the God of everything. Lord, that you are, you are omniscient, you are omnipotent, you are uh, omnipresent, you are sovereign, you are always in control. You've never wondered what in the world is going on. You've never been thrown off your game. So Father, I, I pray that, that we would, above all else, worship you for who you are. And I pray, Father, that you would convict us and reveal to us where we have failed to do that. Lord, convict us where we've put trust, confidence, obedience in the, the kingdoms of this world. Lord, reorient our hearts and our, and our minds to, to just be aware that our, our highest allegiance is to you. Lord, give us wisdom to know what it means to live as a citizen of, of this world faithfully but yet also be a citizen of a heavenly kingdom an eternal home would help us to do that give us wisdom to do that we need we need that this morning goodness gracious if the stuff we see in the news around us every day reveals anything we need wisdom And then, Father, if there's one here this morning that, Father, maybe they're not yet a citizen of heaven because they've never trusted in you. I pray that you would reveal that this morning, that you would convict, that you would, and that you would draw near, that they would respond in, in the repentance of sin and, and in trusting in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. So, Father, we ask you to do these things among us in this moment and even beyond this moment. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.